Hi there, I'm Tara Hunt of Truly Social, and I'm a proud supporter of Where There's Smoke. So why is that? It's because WTS is one of those shows that actually makes me smarter. Every week, I'll listen to each episode two or three times, taking notes and looking up the resources they reference. They've even informed my own work. They've definitely made me sound smarter at networking events. And as a fellow content creator, I know how much love and work they put into each show. The research, writing, and production takes many, many hours. So please join me in going to supportwts.com to make sure that Brett and Nick can keep providing us with the awesomeness that is where there's smoke. All right. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> I'm like legitimately nervous, Brett. What? I'm like legitimately nervous about like what we are embarking on. Well, this is fun, man. This is this. Is, I, I okay, so let me explain funny. what's what's happening here. Last Wednesday, that's March 29th, Brett and I posted something a little bit different on our Facebook page. The post read, "We need your help." This week at WTS, we're going to do something a little different. We're doing a 48-hour challenge. We're going to write, record, and edit our show in 48 hours. And we need you to help us. Okay, so then we asked people to comment on that post with just a single word. And the challenge was that we would take one of those words and make an entire show out of it in just 48 hours. And uh, we had so many great responses. And thank you so much for those that commented. And also, if you're not following us on Facebook, you, you missed out. You should be following us. Uh, without a doubt, you're going to be seeing some of those words. They were so great. You'll be seeing some of those words in future episodes. But Brett and I just thought that the 48-hour challenge was a fun idea because we were looking for something fun and light this week. And Brett was very excited to see that Bacon, of all words, yes, Bacon had received so many likes. But when it came down to choosing the word itself, he wanted to be fair. He wanted to keep it a challenge. So we used a list randomizer and put around 50 of your suggestions on there. And don't worry, Bacon was on the list several times. Um, but here's what happened. I'm going to press randomize, and then I guess the top word will be, will be the show. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, Brett, are you ready? Uh, I am ready. Did you want to do your uh, whammy stuff? Well, uh, when, when, well, you tell me when you're going to press it, and then I'm going to definitely scream for no whammies. Okay, uh, I'm going to press it. Three, two, one, pressing. Come on, bacon. Come on, bacon. Come on, bacon. No whammies. No whammies. Oh, number one is trauma. Oh, man. <laughs> all right you know so the show the show's about trauma ooh, you know what's crazy is like we were talking about this show earlier in the week and we had both decided we didn't want to do anything heavy <laughs> <laughs> now we have trauma all right well we'll see you after the, the theme <laughs> oh no oh Welcome to Where There's Smoke, the show where we explore self-development through the lens of current events, pop culture, and experience. This week, our first ever 48-hour challenge, and from your suggestions, we're talking about trauma. We'll explore some of our own traumas, along with what causes it, how we can cope, and even how we can thrive. Plus a brand new WTS Digs. My name is Brett Guida. His name's Nick Jaworski. Let's start the show. It's a heightened and ongoing state of fight or flight in which the sympathetic nervous system is hyperactive. 
as if he is reliving the incident of trauma over and over again. It can plunge a seemingly peaceful individual into mental and emotional chaos. Sounds a lot like PTSD. So, where are we going? Trauma is not a word that one takes lightly. Certainly not us. An initial fear that both Nick and I had in tackling this topic is we didn't want to offend anyone. There was a bit of, well, who are we to say? A feeling that perhaps our experiences of trauma don't give us the credibility to speak about it freely. But as we researched and spent time within the idea, it became apparent that our fears didn't hold water on a lot of levels. Trauma, from the Greek word traumatikos, meaning wound. And certainly all of us have wounds, some physical, some emotional, some both. These wounds are caused by incidents in our life. And traumas are these wounds that stay with us in some way. From a psychological standpoint, they are not integrated. They do not get resolved. And I think most people think about trauma as stemming from very intense, even rare incidents. Situations where we, as human beings, are confronted with actual or threatened death or serious injury, or we witness these horrors happening to others. And yes, those types of incidents often result in trauma. However, trauma is created not by the objective facts of an incident. People will experience and react to similar events differently. And it is this subjective experience of an incident that causes people to become psychologically traumatized or not. And the kinds of events that cause trauma, they are not so rare. In his 2006 paper, The Precarious Present, psychologist and neurologist Dr. Robert Skayer wrote, we need to rethink our fundamental assumptions about trauma. He says that, quote, in fact, any negative life event occurring in a state of relative helplessness, a car accident, the sudden death of a loved one, a frightening medical procedure, a significant experience of rejection, can produce the same neurophysiological changes in the brain as combat, rape, or abuse. And that what makes a negative life event traumatizing is not the literal life-threatening nature of the event, but rather one, the degree of helplessness it engenders, and two, one's history of prior trauma." Unquote. And so to make sure we're all on the same page, we can take Dr. Skayer's words and conclude that we can become traumatized from any negative life event that occurs in a position of relative helplessness. So a list of events that cause trauma could include but not be limited to assault, illness, ridicule, betrayal, neglect, financial stress, embarrassment, bullying, death of a loved one, bankruptcy, foreclosure, addiction, miscarriage, abortion, being a single parent, defamation of character, an oppressive boss, a demanding parent or teacher, feeling unloved, being fired or laid off, divorce, or an unresolved injury. And that is just naming a few. Meaning that almost all of us have some form of trauma in our lives. And for each of us, those traumas carry their own weight. It is a weight that only we know. And while in medicine, something called an injury severity score is used to assess the severity of a physical trauma, 
we cannot use any absolute scale to quantitatively compare psychological traumas among each of us. For a 13-year-old boy or girl being bullied, it can feel as intensely traumatic to them as a 23-year-old witnessing death in war or an attack. To paraphrase Dr. Scare, it is not the event itself which dictates its weight on us, it is our experience of it. And none of us can truly gauge the traumatic impact of any experience for another person. I can easily say that trauma isn't the topic I would have chosen for the show, partially because, as Brett and I already talked about, we were really hoping to do a fun show, you know, something light. And obviously, the words fun and trauma are not heard in the same sentence too often. Well, unless the sentence is something like, I was having so much fun until that trauma happened. But the other reason I didn't want trauma to be the topic is because well, I don't consider myself to be someone who has particularly overcome a traumatic experience. That's just not how I view myself. I'm not, I'm not a survivor of anything. I think of myself as more of an endurer, someone who slogs through a fair amount of self-created muck and lives to see another day. But after diving into research and writing several drafts of the script, it dawned on me that I had experienced something that could reasonably be called trauma before. I had just Never thought of it that way. I was reading an article on post-traumatic stress disorder from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, and their definition of trauma is a shocking and scary event that you see or that happens to you. During this type of event, you think that your life or others' lives are in danger. You may feel afraid or that you have no control over what is happening. When I was very young, I think like two and a half years old, my family took a trip to California, and while we were hanging out on the beach, a wave rolled up and swept little two-and-a-half-year-old Nick out into the ocean. Ultimately, my dad came and got me, and it probably wasn't a big deal. But of course, every time you remember something, that memory changes just slightly and becomes distorted. So now at my age, I remember it as a violent, huge wave, but I'm sure it was nothing. Regardless of the size, the impact of that event was very real. So much so that when I was six or seven, the lesson from that experience, water is bad, had clearly imprinted itself on me. And so at that age, I still hadn't learned how to swim. So in first grade, my neighbor Danny invited a bunch of us to a birthday pool party at his house. And I went even though I was afraid of bodies of water. I felt comfortable in this pool because I could stand up in it and there were lots of adults around. So I just stayed in the shallow end and hung around the edges where I had something to hold on to. And it was fine. It was great. We were having a fun time, splashing, yelling, playing games. And as I became more comfortable in the water, I also became more brave. I started sliding further away from the steps. And this pool didn't gradually get deeper. It didn't slope downward. It just had a step between the shallow end where I could stand, and the deep end, where I, I would need to swim. But I didn't know that. I also didn't know that the dividing rope between the shallow and the deep ends had been removed. One time when I was in college, I was 
driving on a highway through the cornfields of Illinois, probably 70 miles per hour. And then suddenly a deer ran straight onto the highway and I just plowed right into it. And, and there was just no time to react. And I distinctly remember after it happened how confused I was. Like one minute I'm driving, I'm listening to the Cardinals on the radio. And the next minute there was some sort of thud. And then my car hood was up and my windshield was shattered and I'm just driving in the middle of the road. And I was, I was just confused. And it took a few seconds for my brain to process what I had clearly seen with my eyes. Oh yeah, Nick, there was a deer. You hit it and it rolled over the top of your car. You should pull over. So when things happen suddenly, there's just this disconnect between what your eyes see and what your body can process, what your brain can understand. And so there's this moment of just confusion. Well, the pool incident was just like that. I was just having a great time and then I took one more step forward and suddenly everything was weird. Everything sounded strange. Like somebody had turned the treble all the way down on your stereo suddenly. And it was confusing and disorienting. What's happening? What, what is this? And then a few moments later, my brain put it together. Okay, Nick, I know what's happening. You stepped into the deep end, and now you're drowning. So once I figured that out, I immediately started trying to get the attention of the adults at the party. I managed to sort of turn and face the deck, and I started yelling and flailing my arms, but nothing happened. Like, nobody moved. Nobody noticed. And this went on for a while, like, me flailing around, gasping for air, fighting for my life, surrounded by people. But then... Black. Well, black implies that there was something, but really there was nothing. So I guess blank would be a better word for it. Now, spoiler alert, I survived. I mean, there's no real drama here because, I mean, I'm telling you the story. It's sort of like watching one of those high-stakes dramas on Netflix, but knowing the main character survives because there's still three seasons left. So it's kind of like that. So... Eventually, I came to on the deck of the pool. Uh, apparently, somebody had jumped in and grabbed me. And while my memory is hazy about this, I, I distinctly remember being told by at least one of the adults that they all thought I was just playing around, that I was just pretending to drown. You know, like, like you do. Then I walked back down the street, or somebody walked with me, and that was it. I went on with my day, they went on with theirs, and, and in fact, no one told my mom like what had happened, like my brush with death. No one told her. I think I told her years later. Now, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm not proud of this, but I still can't swim. That moment from a quarter of a century ago, and then the ocean incident from before that, they've done their work on me. As I've gotten older, it's turned from I can't swim to I won't swim to I don't swim. And so for my entire life almost, you know, I've carried this story with me. Water is bad. Okay, so here's the thing. I've spent all of these years so struck by how close to death I was. Like, I would say I almost died in this pool. And when I think about it with my 33-year-old eyes and think about that happening to my nieces, it just makes my heart race. It's so terrifying. You know, despite our ability to thrive and to survive as people, 
you know, as individuals, we live on the knife's edge of oblivion every day. But while I've been afraid of death and afraid of the things that could get me there sooner, I just recently realized something else, and, and I think it's important. If I had died that day in that pool, I wouldn't have known. You know, as it was happening, there wasn't an overwhelming feeling of, this is the end of my life, this is it, I am dying, I am dead. My body was just fighting, just fighting to survive, without thought, without a plan, just this ceaseless battle to live. And that need to survive almost savagely is, is what we share with almost all living things, other people, uh, wolves, plants, bacteria. It's just programmed within all of us. Live. And I know that everybody's experience is unique to them and that you might take away a different lesson from this, but what struck me recently was that in that moment, while I was in the pool, when everything went dark, if I never woke up, if I had died in there, I would never have known how it all turned out. Did I make it? And yeah, I find that comforting. That even in, in that moment, there was some sort of peace. And I feel like in some ways I'm lucky that my closest brush with the vastness of, you know, whatever's next, that the fear was kept away from me, that it wasn't drawn out over hours or months or years. It just happened in the blink of an eye. And yeah, afterwards, the experience has left quite a scar, but that's, you know, that's the byproduct of surviving. So now, my goal is rather than feel shame or to feel guilt over these fears, I'm trying to look at this as a chance, you know, a chance to build on the past and create new meaning out of old scars. technicians will do the erasing in your home tonight. That way, when you awake in the morning, you find yourself in your own bed as if nothing had happened. A new life awaiting you. We are not capable, neither individually or through science, of destroying memories that we no longer want, as explored in the 2004 film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. However, in a 2014 New Yorker article entitled Partial Recall, the question is asked, can neuroscience help us rewrite our most traumatic memories? And the answer to that question seems to be a resounding, maybe. There is already much science that shows memories are biologically vulnerable to change. And there is evidence that we can rewrite our darkest memories. But these scars that Nick was talking about, they do not exist just in our minds. Oftentimes, traumatic events in our lives leave not just psychological scars, but actual physical ones as well. And these two manifestations of scars become linked. The physical scar, a reminder, a trigger to the emotional trauma of the event that caused it. 
And we must find ways to cope with these physical scars to support us in moving past the traumas they invoke. If you were going to introduce yourself to uh, you know our audience in 30 to 60 seconds, how would you do that? Yeah, so I'm a tattoo artist uh, that works under the name Oberon Wolf. Um, I'm based out of Vancouver, uh, otherwise known as the Unceded Coast Salish Territories. Um, I like to do tattoos that uh, help people embody a really empowered version of themselves, and often that means doing some heavy healing and, and work around trauma. A lot of people carry it. Uh, I identify as a non-binary person, so I use uh, they, them, their pronouns. Um, and yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Oberon Wolf works with their clients to design tattoos around cut lines from self-injury, burn welts, and traces of physical violence, painting them into symbols of empowerment. My original desire to tattoo came from a place of uh, wanting to do scar cover-ups, but in the process of actually learning to tattoo, I discovered that any tattoo, whether or not it's going over a scar, can be transformative if the right attention is put into it by both the artist and the client seeking to do it. Uh, intention and care can make a tattoo an incredibly empowering, transformative experience from trauma and and hurt. Um, and things in our past. And I was very lucky to have uh, organically developed a practice in which I get to hold space for people's tender, tender experiences. And, uh, and I want to, I want to be their partner in creating a tattoo that will have them walking away feeling the most themselves and the most strong they can be. And that can encompass a wide range of, of styles and approaches and, and histories. Everyone is different, but everyone carries something. And Oberon carries trauma too, including sexual assaults, car and bicycle accidents, and being on campus during the 2006 Dawson College shooting in Montreal. They found that receiving tattoos was an immense vehicle for personal empowerment and now says tattooing other trauma survivors is a calling that gives life purpose. I have a client in, in Ottawa who um, has self-injury scars and who wanted something to cover them up, as many people do when they get to a point where that is beyond them in their life. And we did a, a watercolor cover-up piece. Organic shapes are fantastic for covering up intense scar tissue. Um, and so we did a, a beautiful watercolor piece. And, and uh, now that is what people notice and comment on. Oberon has clients who have said that through working with them, they feel a huge sense of relief, don't get traumatized anymore. And one said that getting tattooed by Wolf stopped her from killing herself. In, in your opinion, I mean, with what you do, how would you, if someone asked you, well, why is it that this is so transformative for people? Or how is it that this process of, you know, tattooing over these, these scars, these marks, it helps people? What would be your answer? Choice is a big central part of it. Anytime you make a choice, you empower yourself is like a way of looking at it. It doesn't necessarily need to be a truth for everyone, but it's, it's a central piece. Um, you know, there's, Often for people who do self-injury things who, or who've received physical trauma from another event or person, there's not a lot of choice 
involved in those moments. And so when it comes to an actual physical scar cover-up, choosing and owning and rewriting that moment where you had no power is incredibly empowering. Um, I think that goes for every tattoo, whether or not it covers something. You know, you're making a concrete choice. You're investing in yourself. The process of tattooing can also be super healing. It, it can be a very mindful experience. You can take the opportunity to try and focus on your breath and be present in the moment, which, um, you know, many, most circles of uh, positive psychology will attest to the benefit of being present with yourself and present with your, your body, your breath, your feelings, your pain, um, letting them run their course. And also, you know, I think that art just makes things beautiful. I crawled out of a lot of personal sadness through an art therapist who told me to stop painting what I felt and start painting the way the world should be. And I think that that's how I hope that tattoos are designed is that people are painting what they want their bodies and their world and their feelings to be. And therein lies certainly one of the most powerful healers of trauma, our choice. There has perhaps never been a more untrue adage than time heals all wounds. While time can give us a canvas to work on, it is what we do within the time that heals, or at least starts a healing process. And here's the thing. Reactions to traumatic events vary and, as we said before, there's no right or wrong way to respond. Situations and people are all different. But after the initial shock and processing of a traumatic event, research tells us that most likely you'll recover. In fact, the chances are very good that you'll grow from the experience. So what we've done now is we've tried to learn about it from a scientific perspective. That is, we've tried to look at what are the data that support the idea of post-traumatic growth. Yes, you heard that right. Post-traumatic growth. That's Dr. Richard Tedeschi talking on the Soaring Word web series. Now, we've probably all heard about post-traumatic stress, but only 5 to 10% of people who experience trauma will get diagnosed and seek treatment for PTSD. Instead, there's a good chance that some level of growth will occur, and that's what Dr. Tedeschi, along with Dr. Lawrence Calhoun, call post-traumatic growth, and it's a topic they've been researching since the 1990s. In addition to the distress that comes in the aftermath of various kinds of traumatic events, people often find that they learn something of value, they change in ways that they value, they experience what might be for some a personal transformation. So this struggle in the aftermath of these traumatic events to, to cope with them and to figure out how to live with this difficulty and the outcomes that people experience in the aftermath of these events we call post-traumatic growth. Then we found, for example, that maybe half to two-thirds of people report post-traumatic growth. Half so to two-thirds, that's very encouraging. Yes, it is. I mean, it's, it's not an uncommon thing. It's not a universal thing. But um, more people report post-traumatic growth than report post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, in the aftermath of various kinds of traumatic events. We're not talking about the trauma itself creating the change. We're talking about what people do in the aftermath of the trauma, how they get through it, and who can be around them that can help them make that difference so that they find something of value in it. 
Now, the idea of growth through suffering isn't new. It can be found in Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, and probably a million other places. What Tedeschi, Calhoun, and others are doing is simply applying modern scientific techniques to an idea that humans have believed for thousands of years. Through understanding how this growth occurs, the hope is that we can provide people with some tools so that they have the best chance of moving forward. According to Dr. Tedeschi, characteristics of post-traumatic growth include a greater appreciation of life, a changed sense of priorities, warmer, more intimate relationships, a greater sense of personal strength, and a recognition of new possibilities or paths for one's life and spiritual development. Now, while our understanding of this phenomenon is always evolving, research has highlighted a number of ways that might increase your chances for growth out of tragedy. For starters, one thing that seems abundantly clear is that survivors of tragedy benefit from social support. They benefit from friends and family who are there for them. And if you're somebody who wants to support others and you want to be helpful, Dr. Tedeschi provides some simple tips on how to be an expert companion. Lawrence Calhoun and I have talked about this in terms of expert companionship. Mm -hmm. We want to see other people learn how to support trauma survivors in this expert way. Not expert in terms of being a professional, but being a really good companion. Someone who is able to listen to difficult stories, someone who doesn't offer platitudes, someone who can actually learn from the person who's going through this difficulty rather than think they have to have the answers to this person's problems. So it's an attitude towards listening, supporting, being a presence mm -hmm. for another person. And lastly, researchers point to the power of acceptance as a healing mechanism. You don't have to understand what happened and you definitely don't need to like it. But if you can accept what has happened, if you can accept what cannot be changed, then you're in a better position to experience the type of growth that we're talking about. Sasha Joseph Newlinger, who is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, makes this very point in his TED Talk, Trauma is Irreversible, How It Shapes Us is Our Choice. There's an old Chinese proverb that I like, and it states that the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. I can't change the past. I can't reverse the trauma. I can only choose how I show up in the present moment of my life. Now we recognize that this isn't always an easy road for any of us. We can talk about finding the growth in trauma and yet when you are in it, that can almost sound patronizing. Some people are very resistant to the idea. They want to say, well, I understand that for your situation, that might apply, but mine was so horrible. You don't understand. It's, it's not like that for me. And that's true. We don't understand. None of us do. We weren't there. It wasn't us. But we are inclined to agree with the words of Viktor Frankl, who wrote, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. 
And so after all of this exploration, it does seem that trauma is not definitive based on our circumstances, nor does trauma define you or I or any of us. It is our mindset within those circumstances that dictates our experiences and who we ultimately become. Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, is perhaps the seminal work around the power of the mind to dictate our circumstances. Frankl was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist who survived four Nazi concentration camps. He spent three years living in concentration camps and while he survived, his mother, his brother, and his wife were all killed. Viktor Frankl certainly lived through horrific, traumatic situations. And even after enduring the suffering in these camps, he was left with the belief that even in the most absurd, painful, and dehumanizing situations, life has meaning. And in the midst of the muck and the mud of humanity at its worst, we're given a chance to, as Frankel himself said, bear testimony to human potential at its best, which is our ability to turn personal tragedy into human triumph. Our freedom is a finite freedom, a limited freedom. That is to say, a human being is never fully free from conditions, be they of biological or psychological or sociological uh, kind. But the ultimate freedom is always and remains always reserved to ourselves. That is the freedom to take a stand to whatever conditions might confront us. How we react to the unchangeable conditions is up to ourselves. In other words, if we cannot change a situation, we have always the last freedom to change our attitude to that situation. We want to thank tattoo artist Oberon Wolf for speaking to me on such short notice and bringing their passion and story to this week's episode. We also want to thank Fru Williams in Sydney, Australia for the suggestion of trauma, which obviously got picked for this week's show. And, and Fru's actually been a fan of the show since early in season one. She's making her own impact on the world. She's a food nutrition coach and a personal trainer. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram as Fru Williams. That's F-R-O-U-W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S. And on Twitter, she's Fru Love. So thanks for the suggestion, Fru. And Nick is here with me, and uh, speaking of the suggestion, Nick, we're going to kind of debrief this 48-hour challenge. Brett, if you were to say, let's say this is a pass-fail. I used to be a teacher, so yeah. pass-fail. How do you, what, what would have happened? What happened here? What, would we have passed or failed? Uh, we would yeah. have failed. Oh, yeah, we would have failed. I would have definitely failed us. Because <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that it's Monday, and we're essentially on a normal production calendar. Uh, but... To be fair, from the moment that we picked the topic, we didn't get much done for that first 
day, is that right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, we hadn't actually scheduled two free days. So I had very little time, you had a little bit more time than me, but really at the end of 48 hours, I had spent all my free time working on the show, and that free time probably amounted to about, you know, maybe 10 hours max. So we didn't set ourselves up so great. And the reality was we realized really early, Nick, that a 48-hour challenge actually meant we had to research and write an entire show in one day because it takes us a whole day to edit it. Well, yeah, and to get to get the credits in there and to do everything else. Now, having said that, we're going to do this again someday. Yeah, and I do believe <laughs> so, we can do it. I do. I totally believe we can do it. Yeah, so so just if you want to make sure that you're part of that, dear listeners, uh, you should obviously follow us on Facebook. That's where most of the action happened. We've got a newsletter you can subscribe to on the website. Uh, what else? we got the Patreon campaign. We, we message them. So if you want to be part of future 48-hour challenges that hopefully we will crush out of the park, <laughs> and then we'll do 24 and 12 and 6 and 6-minute six challenges, then you should be following us all those places. Right on. Thanks, everyone. Hey, everybody. Welcome to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Of course, I'm talking about WTS Digs. This is the part of the show where we talk about the things that we love, the things that we're paying attention to, the things we're reading, we're watching. So this is where we do that. That's my that's my intro. Brett? Yeah. And well, just Nick, before we get to Digs, I just feel like I want to clear something up real quick. So we did a little bit of an April Fool's joke prank post thing on Facebook uh, where we yes. announced that Where There's Smoke was going to be making a barbecue sauce. Um, mm. And I just want to, first of all, it was a New Year's prank, so we are not making a barbecue sauce. Not I have, New Year's prank. It's a April Fool's prank. Uh, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Do they do New Year's pranks in Canada? Is that what this <laughs> yes, is? Yes, exactly. We do all kinds <laughs> of pranks in Canada. Um, so it wasn't an April Fool's prank, though I will say, Nick, I think people out there might want us to make a WTS barbecue sauce, but that's a whole other topic. We get enough followers on Patreon, we'll make a barbecue sauce. <laughs> we'll make that one of the Patreon goals. That's a good idea. Where, At what amount will we make a barbecue sauce? Um, so I did just want to say that the barbecue sauce does exist. I discovered it and shared it with Nick when we were actually trying to figure out our Facebook handle. Because Facebook.com forward slash where there's smoke is actually a barbecue sauce. And Nick, you don't even know this. I'm telling you this live. But I just got a message back from the guy who sells the barbecue sauce. <laughs> yeah, we've been trying. So apparently, you reached out to only, him before. What do you say? Well, it's apparently it's only available in local markets. He's in the states. I actually don't even know where yet. I'm kind of trying to find that out. But he did say the last text to me or Facebook message. He said I could send you some dot dot dot. So the story is to be continued. Oh my gosh, I want some so bad. <laughs> we'll be digging somewhere there's smoke barbecue. Yeah, sauce. that'll definitely be a dig at some point in the future. So nice segue. Thanks. <laughs> so, Brett, speaking of digging things, what are you digging this week? All right, Nick. Well, this week I am digging a TV show. Uh, it's actually a show I've been digging for a while, but I'm bringing it up right now because it just started its fourth and what's going to be its final season. And uh, the show's called Banshee. It actually airs on Cinemax here in the States, which is also owned by HBO. So it's available on, on HBO Go to stream in some countries and available kind of different ways so people can kind of see how it's available in their country. Uh, but it's a show that uh, that I've really been loving for a while. It's honestly not for everyone just because it is a bit violent at times, even for me. But at the same time, the action scenes, the stunts are incredible. The cast is very charismatic. There's just all the characters i am really been drawn into. Um, the, the second season had an episode called The Truth About Unicorns that was one of the most beautiful episodes of television I've ever seen. And I just love that this show is real and it has consequences and, you know, people are doing things they probably shouldn't be doing and at times they pay for it and it just, it feels real. And, uh, and at the same time, it, it feels dramatic and fun. So 
The final season just started, which is why I'm bringing it up. It's going to be eight episodes, and there's already three ten-episode seasons in the bank. So, um, you know, if you're a fan of kind of action and there's, there's some heist feel in this and kind of that whole posse and intertwining stories, it's, it's a great show. So it's called Banshee. It airs on uh, Cinemax here in the States and HBO Go as well. And that's what I'm digging, Nick. So uh, what about you? What are you digging? Well, uh, because, listen, listeners, listen, <laughs> listeners, I got to say, one time somebody did comment to us that we do too many television shows in our digs. And so I've become a little defensive of it. But screw it. I'm doing another television show, Brett. I'm doing it. <laughs> I'm doing I, I even it. don't know when you find time to watch TV. I mean, you're editing like 24-7. You don't just do this show. I don't know how well, you do this. Well, this. This, is, this, is this is a good example of something. So coming up here in a couple weeks is the return of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And I would say that the first season on Netflix was one of the funniest shows of the year, along with Broad City, Rick and Morty, those kinds of things. But if you ha- you've, you've watched some of this show, right? I right? have watched some of this show, yes. And I think I love the show because it's so funny. It's uh, created co-created by Tina Fey. It stars Ellie Kemper, and it's about a woman who comes out of a doomsday cult. She's held in a bunker for you know 10, 15 years, and then she gets freed and has to make sense of New York City. And um, <laughs> the premise alone is great. <laughs> Uh, it has sort of, it, you know, Tina Fey, of course, so it's got that 30 Rock sort of pacing, lots of jokes, lots of, of witty banter. And uh, But what's so nice about it is how positive it is and how, you know, the theme song is fantastic and it really just talks about sort of Kimmy's strength to get through that and how her strength carries her through this freedom. So it's really, it, it's, such, it's a good show. It's hilarious, great messages. Uh, and so if you haven't watched the first season, you, you a couple weeks, I think it comes back on the 15th. So you get a couple weeks to watch it and catch up your first season too. So Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt on Netflix. Cool. So there you go, guys. If you uh, you know have spare time or don't have spare time, we're going to take it up anyways. So uh, two TV shows this week for our digs. Uh, we'll be back with more next week. Again, we always want to hear from you guys. What are you digging? Please tell us on Facebook, Twitter, scream it out your window, whatever works. But let us know what you're digging too. Thanks a lot. Thanks. don't know why people leave during the credits. I always stay during the credits. Yeah, me too. This is Orson. A big shout out to all of our Patreon supporters, including Kirsten Vermullen, Tell Ditzler, Danielle Jakubiak, Dustin Harder, and many others. We appreciate your support beyond words can express. And if you are a Patreon supporter and would like me to send you a random postcard from the road, please email me your physical address to brett at wherethersmoke.co. And of course, if you are not yet a Patreon supporter and want to financially back the show, please go to supportwts.com. Big thanks to show supporter HCMA Architecture and Design in Vancouver and their Tilt Curiosity Labs for being a fellow curious explorer of the world. Last week, Where There's Smoke made best of the week list by the Audio Signal Newsletter and the podcast broadcast. They gave props to our criticism and quality time episodes, respectively. If you want weekly insights and podcast recommendations, subscribe to both of these newsletters. For iTunes reviews, thank you Melanie Rusin in Australia and Stephen Goldman in the USA. If you have not reviewed the show on iTunes, please consider doing that. Written reviews really help to raise our visibility to potential new listeners. As Nick mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can follow us on Facebook and also find us on Twitter. We are at ExploreWTS. Where There's Smoke is research written, emotionally processed, reflected upon, edited, and used as a vehicle for coping and growth by Nick Jaworski and myself, Brett Gaida. The theme song was written and recorded by Des McKinney and remixed by Nick Jaworski. And Nick, what other musical artists were featured in this show? 
This week we have music from Blue Dot Sessions, Mads, Lee Rosevere, Ketza, Kai Angle, Minden, and then at the beginning and near the end, our pal, Kevin McLeod. If you want me to come out to speak at an event or work with your company, email me at brett at wherethersmoke.co. And if you want help making your podcast sound awesome, check out Nick's company at podcastmonster.com. And lastly, contrary to Nick and I's belief that trauma and fun are not found in the same sentence very often, we were reminded this week that the exploration of the human experience and making shows for all of you is always fun for Nick and I. Cameron, dear friend, you thought we wouldn't have any fun. Shame on you. Thanks for participating and listening. We love you. We'll see you next week.